There is no other place to go than Jesus Christ and His cross alone. And those of you who have been washed clean by your sins, your conscience has been cleansed from dead works that you might serve the living God, know that for sure. And so there are two things that God does whenever He, he proclaims the gospel. The gospel is not just to get saved. The gospel is for believers as well. And so there may be people watching this morning, listening this morning that have never trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're still in your sins. You're still outside of being reconciled to to God. And so he proclaims that good news that you might be able to hear and might be able to flee the wrath that's coming and find grace and mercy in Jesus. And for those of you who have trusted in the gospel, hearing the gospel again is, is nourishment to, to our souls. It reminds us the, the, the great grace that God has poured out in our lives and then fuels us to, to be able to live for Him uh, even, even more. And that's what's going on in Romans chapter 3. Paul is sharing the gospel to people that have already, been in, that have already embraced the gospel. And he does that, that they might be able to, to participate in, in his work that he's going to, to launch out even beyond Rome in, into Spain. And so we're going to finish up this passage this morning, Lord willing, and I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. We, we read the three verses that we're going to cover, verse 24, 25, and 26. And this is our final time in this great passage about our so amazing salvation which comes to us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this passage is rich. We've been trying to to digest it, and as as we've been going through that, I I likened it to uh, eating a double dark chocolate cake or mousse without milk or coffee. I don't know if you've ever eaten something so rich that whenever you start it, it looks really, really good. You can't wait to dive in, and you're going to just gobble the whole thing down, and then after a few bites, your taste buds start pumping the brakes, saying, this is way too rich. I have to slow down. You can only eat a dessert like that in small bites, and this passage is the, is the same way. It, it can't be gobbled or gorged. The truth that's in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 is unparalleled in, in richness. It's You have to digest it one bite at a time, and that's what we've been attempting to do. It's been said that this passage contains the synopsis of the Christian faith. It's the New Testament gospel in six verses. It's the the good news in a nutshell. It's the nucleus of, of of the new covenant. And so after almost three chapters of dealing with our sin and our condemnation, the but now of verse 21 brings us glorious hope. In verse 21, the now, apart from the law, the Bible declares the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known. It's revealed in the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of, the gospel that he preaches. And it's a righteousness that's realized in the person of Jesus Christ. It was promised in the Old Testament. It was gained by faith alone. It's available to all. It provides justification so that there is right now, not in the future, but right now, no condemnation, and it's freely granted to us by, by His grace, by, by God's grace. And that's where we left off the last time about the, the grace of God. 
We, as human beings, want to earn our way to heaven, but God will only give grace. That's the only way there. Human beings by nature want to earn God's favor, which from a human standpoint seems noble. It, it seems righteous for us to try to earn our way there. But, but hidden beneath the surface, this is where Paul's going to go next, hidden beneath the surface is a desire for a basis to boast. I mean, deep down, the reason we want to work our way to heaven or add to the work of Christ is we want credit to be able to crow before God. Or as William Mount said, God neither needs nor desires our help in doing what we could never accomplish. It is truly amazing grace that, that saves us. And if we stopped right there in this passage, most Christians, even liberal ones, w- would agree with what we've seen and what we've said. Who wouldn't embrace a gospel of a God that's gracious and that that, that, that there's no law that's required to enter into heaven and that it's available to all people. But, but Paul doesn't stop there. He now shares the cost, the cost to God of this great grace that's poured out on us, which, which brings us back to our immense debt of, of sin. What Paul shares in this last section of our passage is that there's a means by which God accomplishes the justification of sinners. Justification is God declaring sinners judicially uh, righteous, even though we're, we're not. And there's a means by which God is able to accomplish that. And that's what Paul covers now in this verse. He, God doesn't just overlook our sin. He doesn't just whisk it away. It must be paid for in a most horrifying way. And And quite frankly, that's where the rub comes in for the world and for for liberal Christians. Everything that we've been looking at so far is the gospel's rich topping. Uh, It's the icing, if you will. But, But in verse 24 through 26, Paul takes his theological fork and plunges it down into the filling. He he goes beneath the surface, and and there you find something gloriously grotesque that lurks. It's begins in the end of verse 24, and it runs through verse 26, where Paul explains how God accomplishes salvation through the death of His Son. And then he even explains why Jesus had to die, and why He had to die in a particular way, uh, uh, the way in which He did, which was the cross. It was a brutal death. And that brutal and bloody death is what self-righteous people find offensive. People think that they are basically good. People that think that way think Jesus is nice, but His bloody death is unnecessary. It's it's uncivilized. It almost offends people when, when you start talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, many will freely embrace the ethics of Jesus. Uh, I can remember a long time ago the um, the... The Fox News host, Bill O'Reilly, he wrote this story about the killing of Jesus. And it was all about how he was a political uh, 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 operative that, unbeknownst to him, was, was taken out. And it was all about the ethics of Jesus. We need to follow his ethics. People embrace the compassion of Jesus, even the works of Jesus. That's where the little bracelets, WWJD, come from. People that embrace the, the works of Jesus. But bring up a public cross and you'll get an entirely different reaction. There's 
something in that that people stumble over. They choke at Jesus paying a holy ransom for, for sin because of what that implies about their own sin and what that implies about God's judgment that's, that's coming. And I don't know if you saw it or not, but a few weeks ago, about two weeks ago, there was an article uh, about the Ark Encounter, uh, Answers in Genesis, the Ark Encounter. If you haven't been there, highly encourage you to go. It's wonderful. It caught my attention, though, because the article was not about creationism, which is usually whenever somebody writes an article about AIG, it's, it's just how silly Christians are that believe that God created the world rather than evolution. And the title and lead sentence gives you an idea of the article. Here it is. At a popular evangelical tourist site, the Ark Encounter, the image of a wrathful God appeals to millions. And the point of the article was that Christians embrace what the writer called an angry God who destroys sinful people. Now, whoever wrote this obviously is oblivious to American history or a man named Jonathan Edwards in the most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? But the article said we find particularly striking. What we find particularly striking about the Ark Encounter is that it is a tourist site devoted to emphasizing with great specificity the wrathful nature of God and the eternal damnation that waits unrepentant sinners. According to AIG, the ancient divine slaughter of the global flood prefigures a future divine slaughter. As the Ark Encounter website puts it, God will judge this wicked world once again, but this time it will be by fire. God always keeps His promises. Judgment will come. According to AIG... We can escape this fate by believing in Christ, but for the billions, past and present, who have not or do not, the result is everlasting conscious punishment in the lake of fire, hell. The message from Ark Encounter is clear and simple. The wrathful God has determined that those who do not accept Jesus as Savior those who are resolutely on the wrong side of culture war issues like abortion and LGBTQ plus rights will pay for their sin eternally, end quote. That's the article. Now, that's not shocking to me or you at all, is it? Because they, you've read the Bible. In fact, you've read Romans chapter 1 through 3, and that's exactly what the Bible says. Maybe minus the culture war concept. But that truth is shocking to the world. And the message is so shocking because the writer assumes something faulty. It assumes a, it's the subtle angle of the, of the argument. I mean, the, the underlying premise is mankind is undeserving of such behavior by God. And that's exactly what many people believe. The article interprets and scrutinizes God based on a false sense of human virtue instead of realizing the human beings are the ones who are under examination, not the Lord of glory. I mean, the bottom line reasoning, the judgment of God is so shocking to, to people is because they don't consider themselves worthy of such treatment. I mean, how could God do that to me? It's just as Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Unless you recognize what Romans 1, 18 through 3.20 says, that we, we walk through what it clearly states that we're the ones who have wronged God, then His judgment seems capricious, seems arbitrary, 
and particularly cruel to a Bible-rejecting world. You see, unless there's sin, then there's no need for judgment. But even further, if there's no need for judgment, then there's no need for a cross. And that's why many people like to try to strip that out of the gospel and focus only on the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus did, not on the crucifixion. The world's perspective on the gospel is by denying sin and its consequences, God's remedy for it is at best incoherent and unnecessary or at worst evil. Even to some professing Christians. You, you probably heard this before. This was a long time ago, a decade or more. Steve Chalk, an, an English philosopher, I won't even call him a theologian, said the idea of God punishing his son on the cross is repulsive. It's equivalent to divine child abuse. The liberal Christian writer Philip Yancey echoed the same thing in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He stated, Calvary will go down in history as a form of cosmic child abuse if it wasn't the case in some mystic sense that God himself also suffered on the cross. And even a fellow liberal picked up on his error, saying the fact that Jesus is God and, and God is one seems almost lost to Yancey. In actual fact, God was on the cross, so he was punishing himself for, for our sins. The point I'm trying to make is that both of these articles attempt, what they attempt to do is to depreciate the very remedy that God has made for our sin. If man is just in need of a new ethic, then you don't need a bloody cross for God to save you. You don't need a crucified Savior to redeem you. You, you don't need a substitute to appease God's holy wrath against sin. But these critics don't need to go any farther than the verse before us today to see how wrong they are because Paul indeed shows us that the cross and the sacrifice on the cross is indeed part of the gospel. And without the blood of Christ, you and I have no salvation. I grew up singing a song, and it is true. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And sinners that have offended a holy God, and you have, need that cleansing power. And Paul declares it's available to us today. Look, if you would, at verse 24 of Romans chapter 3. Verse 24 of Romans chapter 3. Paul says, being justified freely or as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Paul now says this gospel is a gospel that comes through redemption and through propitiation. This justification, this declaration that God makes, that He makes by His grace, because of His grace. It comes to us through redemption and through propitiation. And in redemption, Christ purchases us from the slave market of sin. And in an act of propitiation, of satisfaction, of God's holy wrath, He being the once-for-all sacrifice for sins on the cross for, uh, of Calvary, He soaks up or absorbs the wrath that, that we deserve. And if there is no penal substitute, then Christ dying for sin in a sinner's place. If there is no bloody cross, then we have no salvation. And we have to stand before God's wrath ourselves. The gospel has nothing to do with culture wars, but there is a holy God who is angry over our sin. And in Christ, He is also the one who satisfies His own anger in order to set us free. Let's look at this final point that we'll make today. We're saying there are three ways in this passage 
of God's righteousness, the three ways it's revealed in the coming and cross of Jesus. It's publicized, it's provided, and then it's proven. And that's what we'll cover uh, today. The first way is it's re- that it's revealed is it's publicized in the coming of Christ. We've already seen this by way of review, verse 21. Paul puts the subject matter up front. It's the righteousness of God, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested and it's apart from human merit, it's realized in Christ, it's promised in the Old Testament, it's available through all through faith alone. Number two, he says, that it's provided through the person of Christ. All need it from God, all gain it by a gracious gift, this righteousness. Paul declares all people fail to fulfill their purpose in creation, they fall short of that glory, and then God promises and provides all that we need by His grace uh, alone. And again, that's where we left off, being justified as a gift by His grace. He says it comes freely. It's the adverb. He says that it comes by grace, God's favor expressed in action, and it's His grace. It's grace that comes from God. It comes in the manner of a gift. And now he says this justification, though, is through the redemption, specifically Jesus Christ, the meaning redemption that He brings. So what's Paul saying? He's putting two things side by side so, so that you can see them. This free grace and this great cost to God of redemption. So, I mean, salvation is free to us, but Paul now says it comes at a great cost for God. And, and Andrew Murray said that that costly price put right here, right next to the grace, is, is to magnify the marvel. I mean, so right after singing amazing grace, Paul quickly notes that this freeness and this graciousness of God justifying us, it has a means, it has a medium, it, which is the redemption of Christ. And then our personal faith in that work. I mean, human beings are justified freely, meaning it costs them nothing, but, but it costs God the price of His own Son, His own Son's blood. And that should stun you if, if you think about it. I thought a lot about songs. We sing theology in song. And I thought about a song I used to sing whenever I was first saved. Uh, it was by the late Vestal Goodman, known for the old Gaither recordings. Do you remember those? They still do those, the old Gaither recording? The song was, Who Am I? And the lyrics say, When I think of how he came so far from glory, came and dwelt among the lowly such as I, to suffer shame and such disgrace, on Mount Calvary, take my place, then I ask myself the question, who am I? Who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would pray, not my will, thine for? The answer I may never know, why he ever loved me so. To an old rugged cross he'd go, for who am I? You ever marvel at that? I mean, who are you? Who am I that the king of all creation would come and shed his blood for me? I mean, who are we? And such an unworthy thing, no less. Even the Bible says, Scarcely will a man die for a righteous person, but God commendeth his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the only way I can answer that question is by saying because God's grace is amazing and His love is beyond comprehension. 
Now look at how Paul states this in verse 24. He says, being justified as a gift by grace through redemption. I mean, the gift of justifying righteousness is communicated by God's grace and it's accomplished through dia, through redemption. And there's the necessary cross. The cross is necessary. Redemption is necessary. Redemption modifies the participle, being justified. It's the means by which God accomplishes this justification, your justification. It's accomplished through redemption. The word for redemption has the idea of setting someone free or loosing them. It goes all the way back to the Exodus, how God freed Israel from their bondage. It's it's also used for, for God freeing individuals like like Psalm 31, 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Tom Schreiner said Paul is using the word hinting that the freedom of Israel, the freedom that Israel longed for, has been realized in Jesus Christ. The death of Christ then is the means by which God does away with His people's sin, not not symbolically as the ritual of Leviticus 16 in which the the material mercy seat is figured, but but really, truly, He does away with their sin. So what are we freed from, though? How are we purchased by Christ? It's surely not the old heretical error that, that Christ came to purchase us from the devil on the cross. There's another word that Paul uses for for redemption that I think adds another aspect to this idea of being set free or loosed. It's the word that he uses in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us. It's a completely different word. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as it is is written. This word's root is is agorazo, where where we get the Greek word anagora, those things that the marketplace... The word redemption puts an X in front of it. Uh, it means out of, out of the marketplace. You've been redeemed out of the marketplace. And William Mount said the closest thing that we have to the concept is like, is like putting something in the pawn shop and you're redeeming it. You're, you're going and, and, and getting back what you, what, what you put there. The, the, the problem is that this word doesn't mean redeeming your old grandfather's pistol whenever you need rent money or whatever it is. The, the primary thing that was redeemed in the, in the market, the chief objects that was purchased, were slaves. Slaves could be purchased out of the market or redeemed by, by the payment of a price. Their freedom was redeemed by the payment of a price. And so when you put those concepts together, what Paul is saying here is that after the fall, we are slaves to sin. We're held fast by its chains. We're, we're, we're in bondage to our wills. You remember how he ends that our condemnation in Romans 3, verse, verse 9, uh, we're under sin. We're not just in sin, we don't just do sin, we're under sin's, sin's bondage, we're in chains to it. And now Paul says the way that God has set us free is through Jesus paying the, the price of redemption for us. And the price that he paid was his own blood. Look at Hebrew or 1 Peter 1 knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says the same thing. Matthew 20.28, Mark 10.45, they, they all say the same thing. The price that was paid was the blood of Jesus which is exactly where Paul points next. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through redemption, not just any redemption, 
But redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It, it indicates that it was in and through Him. Well, in and through Him how? Well, that's what He's going to say in the next verse. It's going to come through a cross. It's in and through the person and work of Christ. God accomplished His redeeming action in Christ Jesus. There's no other name given under heaven whereby you must be saved. Because there's no one else but the sinless Son of God that could redeem you. I mean, you can name any man or woman or great philosopher, no matter how wise or how good, and they're still sinners. And therefore, they would need somebody to pay for their sin as well. But, but Hebrews 7.26 says, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from, from sinner, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests that offer sacrifices daily for, for sins and then for the... For those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the, but the word of the oath, which, which can, came later than the law, appoints the, the Son who has been made perfect forever. God's redemption is in Jesus Christ. He's the perfect Lamb of God that was slain so that sinners like you and me could be redeemed. And it had to happen that way. It happened that way so God could be just in justifying sinful people. Here's the third way that God's righteousness is, is revealed in the gospel. It's, it's proven to us or it's demonstrated in the, in the cross of Christ. This verse 25 through 26, look at it and I'll show you how it, how it comes together. It may seem confusing when you first read it, but I'll, I'll try to make it plain to you. Look at verse 25. He goes on with this thought. Whom? Well, he's talking about who? He's talking about Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Redemption through Jesus Christ. Whom God displayed publicly, that's Christ, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That's the main idea here. And now he's going to support it in three ways. This, what's this? This propitiation in His blood, whatever that is. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. It's also for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. And finally, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, so Paul says that Christ as the Redeemer is displayed as a public atonement. So God is demonstrated righteous in, in relation to the past and He is demonstrated righteous in the present, at the present time. And doing it that way, He's declared just in the justifier of people who come by faith alone, even though they're sinners. That's the whole idea of what Paul is saying here. Verse 25 begins a, begins a new sentence and Paul puts his main point up front. He explains why God made salvation come through a cross. You ever wondered that? I mean, why did Jesus have to die that way? Why, why a cross? Why, why such a public spectacle? Well, this verse answers that. Verse 24 says, This redemption in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> God displayed Him publicly or set Him forth as a propitiation. That's the main idea. So it's like the headwaters. And then there are three supporting clauses under that. The main idea is that God made Christ's cross a public atonement for all to see. It's been set forth openly by God. 
That's the verb. And by doing so, He, that is Christ, has now become the place where God meets sinners. Where He is propitiated toward them. Where where they find shelter from His wrath. Where His wrath is satisfied. Where it's absorbed. I mean, the picture here is stunning if if you know your Old Testament. I mean, it alludes all the way back to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 drags us through Isaiah 53, the the suffering servant, and then arrives at the cross of Jesus Christ, Him being God's new mercy seat, where God will now meet sinners. I mean, in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement is the highest holy day on the calendar. It still is today. Moses uh, was told that Aaron and the priests that followed him they cannot enter the, the holies of holies anytime they want. You, you know the picture of the tabernacle and ultimately the temple, the, the holy of holies, this most holy place where God's presence would dwell. Leviticus 16, Moses is told by God, you tell the priest you can't just come in there anytime you want. You can, the consequences are serious if they do. He says, lest they die. You, you can come in If you come in any other time or any other way, you're dead. The Holy of Holies was the innermost room in the temple and the location where the the presence of God would would dwell, would manifest. And the only way a priest could enter there was one day a year on Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest could go. And it was separated by, by a thick veil, a an ornate curtain to shield everyone else and, and even the priests as they work from, from God's glory outside the, the, in the holy place, lest they die as well. It was like a protective barrier between God and man. And inside the Holy of Holies was, was, was one thing. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark was the, the tablets of Moses or the Ten Commandments. And then on top of the Ark, you've probably seen pictures in... Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that, maybe in a, in a children's storybook. You know what it looks like? It's a, it's a rectangular box covered in gold. But then on top of that ark was a lid. And that's what you probably remember. And There were two cherubim on top of the ark and they have really long wings and they're covering their eyes and they're, they're facing one another. The lid was called the, the caparet, the the mercy seat. And there, between those two cherubim, is where a holy God would meet sinful man. That's what the Bible declares. Exodus 25, 22. God says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the, the testimony. And so on this one day, the high priest would enter with incense. First of all, he would fill the Holy of Holies with incense to protect himself from from looking upon God, to shield himself from the glory of God that was in there. And as he would walk in, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on on top of that, that lid, and he would make an atonement for himself and God's people. Now get this picture. Because you have the very presence of God hovering above the ark in, in, this, in this holy place. And inside the ark, inside the, the ark of the covenant, you, you have the Ten Commandments, the broken Ten Commandments of, of man. 
And in between the, the holy presence of God and the broken commandments of man, there is a mercy seat. There's a place where God will meet sinners, and that is where the blood is, is applied. And it's applied by a mediator who goes in and does that for God's people. So that when the holiness of God, the glory of God, looks through the blood that's applied on the mercy seat, he no longer sees the broken commandments, and his wrath was propitiated. And Paul says, now, now God has put forth a new place of mercy. He has brought that entire thing out in the open. Now at the coming of Christ, God has made an atonement Himself, not behind the veil, but in plain sight. And now the location where a holy God will meet sinful man is not over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, but it is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And on that cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the greater sacrifice, as the greater high priest, offers His own blood, and that blood expiates. It removes our sin, it takes away our sin, and it propitiates. It satisfies God toward us. It soaks up His holy wrath for all to see. And that's why the temple, the veil in the temple was, was rent in two. It, you remember those old bounty paper towel commercials? Um, the tagline was bounty the quicker picker upper. <laughs> and then they would do this, they would always do the same thing. There's this spill, whatever it is, you know, Junior knocks over his juice cup and goes all over the table, and there are two paper towels there. You don't know which one is which. They're both applied to the spill, and one one towel wiped it up clean, and, and the other always leaves uh, a pool of liquid behind. It might be a, an insufficient example, but that's what Christ has done for you. Except your spill's not iced tea. It's your sin. It's made a mess. And something has to absorb God's wrath for that. And you've probably been trying to do that on your own. You, you've probably tried to been mopping it up in, in your works or salving your own conscience, but you're not going to be able to clean up that spill. There's going to be something left behind, and with something left behind, God's wrath is coming. Jesus Christ operated on the cross as God's wrath absorber. He, drunk, he, he drank down the, 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 the cup, down to the dregs. He absorbed it all, all the wrath that you and I deserved. He soaked it up. He removed it with His body on the cross so there's nothing left for you to bear. That's why you have no reason to fear God if you're in Christ. And because of that, God can pronounce you justified before Him and, and remain just Himself. Because not one ounce of His holiness is compromised in that way. Doug Moo said, biblical propitiation, this big word here, is very different from the pagan idea. God's wrath is not capricious. He doesn't just fly off the handle. He's not vindictive like pagan deities where, where you have to figure out some way to offer a sacrifice to get the deity to like you or to do something for you. It's, God's wrath is necessary. It's an inevitable reaction of absolute holiness to sin. It's impossible for God not to express wrath towards sin because He's holy. Part of His nature. Moose said not only that, God is the one who, uh, who initiates this 
propitiatory offering. I mean, in, in the pagan idea, uh, people are trying to placate a false god and get forgiveness. They're trying to convince the, the gods with a little g to give them forgiveness, to turn their wrath away from them. But God was never unwilling to forgive us like, like pagan deities. What he's saying here is that Christ's sacrifice enables him to forgive us consistent with his holiness. His holiness brings the wrath and that, that, that holiness demands a payment and you can't pay, so Christ steps between you and God's wrath and absorbs it all in the cross. And this open dealing with sin was to demonstrate justice for now and forevermore, God's justice. Look, look if you would, at verse 25. The rest of the passage is a series of three purpose clauses that modify Paul's lead phrase here. Look at verse 25. Here's the first purpose clause. It explains why God did it this way. Why the cross? Here's the first one. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. This is why He did it. It was to demonstrate His righteousness. Why does His righteousness need to be demonstrated? Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. So, if you're back to your outline, there was a public atonement displayed. And that was to demonstrate God's righteousness in the past. The, the cross, cross's purpose was to demonstrate God's righteousness over past sins uh, under the Old Covenant. Notice three words here in verse 25. We'll, we'll make this plain. Forbearance, passed over, and previously committed. Those are all one word in the, in the original. He says, for God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. So He's clearly talking, there's the time frame. He's talking about sins that took place before Christ came, before the cross. Previously committed sins. It was before the death of Christ. And He says toward those sins, God was forbearing. He was self-restrained. He, he, he purposely, intentionally restrained his, his righteous wrath. That sin didn't earn any less wrath. God just didn't immediately pour it out. He, he was forbearing. God's holiness demanded that those sins be repaid, but He passed over them. He tolerated them, knowing that Jesus would pay the full price whenever He died. I mean, God did that. For all sin from Adam on. I mean, what did he say to Adam? You eat of the tree, and in this day you will surely die. Did Adam die? Well, yes, he died spiritually, but he didn't immediately die physically. God also showed mercy. How could God do that? Well, it's because he knew that he was going to demonstrate his righteousness in Christ. His holiness demanded immediate and full judgment, but, but he didn't give it. He restrained himself. And Peter tells us why, because he's long-suffering. He's not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I mean, he muted his wrath, and then he poured it out on the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he stored it up. And Paul's point is, therefore no one can say God is unjust. No one can say he deals with people differently. No one can say, oh, well, I mean, he just did it by the blood of bulls and goats. And how can Hebrews say that that doesn't take away sin if, if God allowed those people to go to heaven? 
People can't say that He overlooked sin now because of the cross. And Paul also says He's doing the same thing for you even today. Here's the second purpose clause. Look at verse 26. Notice at first it seems redundant. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over sins previously committed. There's the time frame. Verse 26. Here's the second one. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present. Now that's the difference. What's the present time? It's, it's the new age. Right now. So sins before the cross, now sins after the cross. The present age, it's, that's between the, the cross and the second coming of Christ. God will also be restrained. God will also show restraint and be proven that He's righteous. I mean, sins committed from the cross of Christ until the final judgment were also absorbed by Jesus, the, the sins of believers. I mean, did you ever think about that? I mean, how does God deal with sin that you committed 2,000 years after Jesus died? I mean, typically we ask the question, well, how can Old Testament saints be, be saved? Well, they, they look to the coming of Christ. What about the sins that you committed? How can God deal with, with the sin that, that you committed even after you've come to Christ? Well, Paul says it was all dealt with on the cross. All of it was satisfied. All of it was soaked up. The death of Christ was sufficient to cover every sin that was ever committed. But it's applied to those who believe. Those who look to Him by faith. So you'll either pay for your sin or Christ will pay as a substitute for you, but sin will be punished because God is just. And in the cross, for those sinners that God declares justified, God is shown as just because His holiness is taken care of, satisfied, absorbed on the cross. And here's the third way, which I think really is just the, the ultimate it wraps it up. It summarizes them all together. It's the third clause. So that, verse 26, so that he would be, that's God, he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's not just in the justifier of those who are outside of Jesus. He's just toward those who are outside of Jesus and he'll be just in his wrath. But he is just as he justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I mean, Paul uh, says ultimately, all of this was so that in Christ, God Himself would therefore be just in the justifier. And that final clause is the result and the way of faith. So God remains just as the one who judges sin because He poured it out on His Son, and He remains just even as He justifies those in the present time who come by faith alone and in the past, those who look to Christ in the past. Or to say it simply, the cross of Jesus, on the cross of Jesus, God's justice and God's mercy meets. Outside the cross of Jesus, God's justice is coming. On the cross, His holiness and His happiness converge, His his wrath and His love converge on the cross. They're demonstrated there. And I'm here to tell you that there is no other religion or way of salvation or 
written in a book or devised by a man or invented that is so grand and is so glorious as this gospel. I mean, the death of Jesus removes our sin, it satisfies God's holy anger, and it declares God's justice as He declares sinners righteous. And all of that through the power of the blood. It was blood intimated when God covered Adam and Eve. Blood was implied by Abel's better sacrifice. It was It was there when God made a covenant with Abraham. It was shouted whenever God, the angel said that God himself would provide a lamb in the sacrifice of Isaac. It was made plain in the sacrifices of the the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, and now that blood flows publicly from Mount Calvary and it's available to all who will believe. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the perfect lamb of God. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Andrew Murray said in his work, Two Covenants, said this, The blood is one of the strangest, the deepest, the mightiest, and the most heavenly of thoughts of God. It lies at the very root of both covenants, but specifically the new covenant. The difference between the two covenants is the difference between the blood of beasts and the blood of the Lamb of God. The power of the new covenant has no lesser measure than the worth of the blood of the Son of God. Your Christian experience ought to know of no standard of peace with God and purity from sin and power over the world than the blood of Christ can give. If we would enter truly and fully into all the new covenant is meant to be to us, Let us beseech God to reveal to us the worth and the power of the blood of the covenant, the precious blood of the Lamb. Or as the old song says, there is power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood, the blood of the Lamb. Do you need that power? I don't know what you've done, but God does. And whatever stain is left there, the blood of Jesus Christ can wash it clean. Every time I talk about the blood, I always think of that old preacher who talked about the man who came to Christ. And as the preacher does, and sometimes when people come forward like they did to me, how do you feel? <laughs> And the old farmer could only say this. He said, I don't know how to describe it. I've washed with all kinds of soap before, but I ain't never felt this clean. You want to feel clean? You want to be clean? God can provide that through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand stunned in some way. It's it's incomprehensible in another. You are angry with our sin, but you love us at the same time. How How does your anger and your love reconcile that problem? It's reconciled in the cross. They both meet there. So that those who would 
trust in the work of Jesus and His worth alone, you are able then to declare them right with you by faith alone. What an amazing gospel. What good news to us who are sinners. So I pray, Father, even this morning as we started, for anyone who's outside of Christ, that, that today they would yield, they would believe, they'd repent, they'd turn to you, they trust fully in that gospel. And for us who are believers, we'd marvel once again. You would fill us with thanksgiving and motivate us then, Lord, to share this glorious gospel with others. We ask it all in your precious name. Amen.